I said, listen, I'm going to give you a very important decision tonight. You have one of three options. Option number one is you can kill me right now, and there's nothing I can do to stop you. Option number two is I will sell everything I own and hire a hitman to kill you. Option number three is that you leave and no one ever sees you again. Welcome to The Impossible Man, the true story of how the inability to move allowed one person to trade his humanity for odds-defying superpowers, and how he clawed his way back. Hey everyone, and welcome to The Impossible Man. This is our third episode. Big thanks to those of you who got in touch and said that you enjoyed the episode or the podcast as a whole and encouraged us to continue. We are going to continue, but we're going to continue in a very specific fashion. So what we've decided is that there's just so much that we're going to need to plunge here. There's bottomless stories. I mean, you guys haven't heard what I have heard from John, but let's just say that there are a lot of rabbit holes and all of the rabbit holes have rabbit holes. So John and I are going to be talking quite a bit and our original idea to record absolutely everything is kind of falling apart for a few separate reasons. One of which is I didn't sign on to make a podcast. I'm happy to do it. It was my idea. But there's a book to write here. And if I spend all this time editing up the podcast, it's a significant expense of time. We don't come out this clean and polished sounding. That requires a lot of effort. And if I keep doing this, then I'm not going to get that book finished. And that's obviously not something that we're looking for. And the second reason is if I could pull back the curtain a little bit. It's honestly commercial. We've been in touch with some people who are advising us on the proposal and pitching this book, and they said, don't put everything out there. Put out a small portion and leave people wanting more. Well, that's exactly what we're going to do, but I think we're going to do it in a way that's really going to satisfy you. So I think that this episode that you're about to listen to contains both sides of that coin. Number one, you're going to see how many stories are here. You're going to get a really compelling story from John. Let's just say it involves criminals. It involves crazy behavior. It's something. But you're also going to be able to tell that there's a lot more to this that you aren't hearing the full story. That's why you got to buy the book. A lot more fits in a book than fits on a podcast. And honestly, it's a better format for it anyway. So what we've decided to do is to complete an overview of the entire story so that you have the entire story, but you're going to have it in kind of a summary fashion. We anticipate that taking two more episodes for a grand total of five episodes for this podcast, because it was never really meant to be a podcast podcast ongoing. It was always meant to be a limited run to let you know a little bit about this amazing story and to honestly interest you in learning more. So this will be episode three. And unless something kind of unusual happens that we aren't expecting, we think that there will be two more episodes after this. Please keep letting us know if you're enjoying this, because honestly, this is kind of a market test for us. We want to know how interested you guys are. And there is still time to get in questions. So if you have any questions, you can always just get in touch with either of us. So I'm not going to waste any more time here, especially not if that tease that you just heard in the little stinger opening the episode. That story and many more are to come in this episode. And let's just get started. All right, John. So the response has been good to the first couple of episodes. There are a few things that I feel like we should get out of the way, though, that we haven't really done yet that we've just sort of been assuming. Why are you a prominent author like you are known as a as a writer? Why are you working with me on this project at all? Why are you working with any writer? I've tried to write this story many times, and it's always ended in disaster. Either I can't write it or it doesn't fit together right, and I know it. And it eventually occurred to me, after going through a lot of therapy, that the reason why is 
I just went through so much trauma during all of this that it just brings up too much pain, pieces of the story, for, for me to be able to write about it. So in all likelihood, my story, which is the thing everyone wants from me, is the thing that I am most unable to write. It's probably the only thing I'm unable to write. And so that's why it eventually came to me that, well, what if you didn't have to write it, but you could still tell the story? And that's where this idea came from. Do you think any of that is distance from the story? Or I would, I guess I would say lack of distance because you're, you're too close to it. So for instance, the, the major arc that we're pursuing, this idea of learning to be human, that was something that you didn't realize was there from an arc perspective. So do you think that it's just that it's too emotionally close for all of these stories that you, you can't do the story justice? Or is it more traumatic for you or both? When I'm telling these stories, I'm actually experiencing what happened. Some of these stories are about times almost died. Some of these stories are about violence. Some of these stories are about times where I was incredibly depressed. And what happens when I tell those stories is I go back into that state in order to be able to give you as honest of a story as I possibly can. And that results in me losing touch with the present, and it makes it very hard for me to reflect on how to tell the story appropriately or in the most compelling way. So you told me some stuff before we started recording. It was in this vein. It was cautions about how much this was going to affect you and so forth. And that makes me wonder how much you feel that you've sort of processed all of this stuff, just just holistically. Because a lot of times you'll hear people who had traumatic experiences and they're over it or not over it to greater or lesser degrees. But the way that you talk about this, it's almost like you're afraid for your sanity if you go back and revisit them. So do you feel these memories really have that grip on you that you haven't moved through in the ways that you might have otherwise? The best definition I've heard of being healed from trauma is that you can relive the experience without it taking control of you. I am to that point with all of these memories that it doesn't take control of me. That wasn't always the case. And taking control of you, by the way, can mean different things. It doesn't necessarily mean you just like go into a trance. It means if you if there are certain stories you cannot tell, then that story is in control because you want to tell it and you can't. And for a long time, that's where I was with many of these stories is I wanted to tell them and I just couldn't. And I've already told all of these stories now to, to therapists, to people I deeply trust, to close friends. And in the beginning, I was not in control. I like if you start crying uncontrollably while you're telling a story and you don't want to cry uncontrollably, then you are not in control. And those kinds of things happen. They don't happen now. Now, I can't say that I'm in complete control because the story still makes me feel a certain way, but it at least doesn't control my behavior. And so from a therapeutic perspective, that's progress. Another question that I wanted to ask before we really resume this story is, 
you know, I realized it would probably be beneficial to have kind of a, a quick list of the things that the ac- accomplishments that you have. Um, when I talk about the things that you've done and the things that you've achieved, I say uh, very successful multimillion dollar business, one of the best known writers on the web, you know, super intelligent, all that sort of thing. But do you can you give me a punch list of some of the things that you've done that would be impressive if anybody had done them? Writing things that, as far as I can tell, literally hundreds of millions of people have read, um, that would be one. I've made a lot of money, but I'm certainly not, like, mega rich, if anything. I feel like I've underperformed as far as how much money I've made, even though I am a millionaire, so it's kind of weird to say that. Underperformed relative to what? Expectations that you had? When you look at my skill level compared to people with equal skill level at making money and building businesses, they are all richer than me. Now, I think there are reasons for that. They don't need a team of nurses to get them out of bed in the morning. My condition, even though I've overcome it to some degree, is still an enormous distraction and time suck. So it still continues to cost me in the realm of business. Um, But despite that, I've still managed to make enough money to do anything I want to do. Anything else that should go on that list? The things that I'm most proud of are none of those things. I'm most proud of finding the courage to go out and start dating. I'm most proud of falling in love. I'm most proud of for finding the courage to seek therapy. Lots of people brag about how much money they make or how popular they are. But at the end of the day, if you have all of that, but you're a miserable human being, it's not really worth anything. On the other hand, it's where I reconnected, we even connected for the very first time with my own humanity and became a complete person and even had the courage to fight for that. That's what I'm most proud of. All right. So here's a real big juicy question based on the stuff that we've been talking about with your arc. That is the answer of an emotionally mature person who has thought through a lot of this, the idea of being proud of facing demons and going to therapy and all that stuff. What would younger John have said? Younger John would have focused on variations of power, whether that be money, influence, or popularity, because younger John, all he cared about was accumulating enough power to not be scared anymore. What were the achievements in the realm of various versions of power? Getting to the point where I could reach anyone in the world and talk to them with enough effort wasn't always easy, but I eventually got to the point where I can do that. If I want to make a postcard viral, I can. If I ask for favors and powerful people, almost everyone says yes. My good friend David Gonzalez defines influence as the number of people that you can ask for a loan for $100,000 and not tell them what it's for. And they immediately just say yes. That number for me now would probably be pretty high. Well, when we last left off, we covered early days, we covered the beginnings of what I keep calling the emotional callus. And that actually prompted some stuff in you that when you came back, you said, well, there's a lot more to that. There are some some other dark stories that contributed to it. So can you just give me kind of a teaser of what other things started happening around this time that were just contributing to that need to bunker in and build a shell around yourself so that you couldn't be hurt? Probably the biggest one was... 
my mother and father got divorced, and my mother remarried a guy that turned out to be the wrong guy. She made some mistakes in love that many of us do, and wanted to see the best in someone, and eventually found out his family was in the Mexican drug cartel. He was an alcoholic. He was violent. I'm guessing through his family. It was nearly impossible to keep in jail. And I grew up with him as a stepfather. And not only survived, but I was in a position to where I felt like I had to protect my mother. And I was only 15, 16. I was a kid in a wheelchair who didn't have a violent bone in his body in the face of an extremely violent drug cartel. And, I mean, I ended up going to Mexico, met members of the cartel. I've sat face-to-face with a Sicario, a Mexican assassin, and had conversations. But still, I was basically a kid. I learned that whenever you're around someone who's not afraid to use violence as a way to get what they want, that you have to become dangerous to defend yourself. I learned that when you're in the presence of a killer, he never has to tell you that he's a killer. You can just tell. The most dangerous person is someone who can kill you and feel nothing. The only way to make someone like that afraid of you is for them to know that you are also capable of killing them and feeling nothing. That is the only person they respect. And so over the course of four years, that's who I became. I never killed anyone, but there were some close calls. To point out the obvious, you already said it, you're a kid in a wheelchair. How did you become dangerous? Because it doesn't seem like it was happening in the, in the usual way. The most powerful people in the drug cartel are the guys at the top who order all of the Sicarios, all of their kitmen to go out and do things. But they were never personally in a fight. So the most dangerous person isn't actually someone who can do physical violence. It's someone who can order violence done to you without remorse. And that's the way I became dangerous. So you made friends, you made connections. Made friends, I made connections. Killers don't cost that much, especially if you're somewhere like Mexico. I mean, the way it ended was I came out to him one morning and I said, listen, I'm going to give you a very important decision to make. You have one of three options. Option number one is you can kill me right now, and there's nothing I can do to stop you. Option number two is I will sell everything I own and hire a hitman to kill you. Option number three is that you leave and no one ever sees you again. And it's one thing to have a 15 or 16-year-old to say that to you. But what made it different was he could tell that I was being 100% honest and that I would have him killed without remorse. And at that time, I absolutely would have. So he took option C. He took option C. It is an enormous credit to my stepfather that he still chose option C, that, that he still had enough humanity in him to do that. Because the easiest option to take would have been option A to kill me right at that, at that moment. So when I made that bet, I was I was betting, and I knew this, that he still had enough humanity left in him to make that choice. 
Well, I'm also going to assume that there wasn't an, an undeniable amount of pro for him to stay. Did he really want to stay? Was he ready to go? And it was it then more of a matter of pride of not being caught out by some young punk? I, yeah, I think he, he didn't really want to stay. I think there was some pride. And also, I think at Clark, he was a coward. So he was never allowed into the cartel because he was seen as too much of a hothead and, and just kind of an idiot. But also, I think he did love my mother. I think he did respect me. And I think he did feel regret for things he had done and the way that he had affected us. And he just needed someone to tell him, like, this is really it, and I mean it. Needed the decision made for him, right? Because he might have felt the need to waffle in some way if you hadn't made it clear. Yeah, and he was also familiar enough where if he hadn't believed me, he wouldn't have left. But he 100% believed what I was telling him was true. His face actually turned white when I, when I told him. And he didn't say a word. He went and packed his stuff, and he left, and I've never seen him again. All right. Well, then I circle back to where do you go from there? Because that's that in itself is its own, you know, fantastic story. And now I'm imagining you kind of go back to normal life. And that just seems weird after something like that. I went back to a somewhat more normal life, but I was the same person. He had still turned me into someone who could kill without remorse. I'm grateful I've never had to do that. But even if your life circumstances change, it's not something that, that goes away. And even now, it's still with me. If I were to ever become convinced that the absolutely only option was to kill someone, uh, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind I could do it. And I, I say that knowing this is being recorded. Well, so you're 16 with this attitude. So like that's that's pretty dark at age 16. You still had high school to finish. You still had college to do. You still had a lot of normal world stuff to do. Did it just kind of bubble into the background? So I graduated like two or three months after this happened. I graduated a year early, and I was one of those kids who started school young. So I graduated when I was 16. What I learned from that experience was I had to be in charge or no one was safe. That was a subconscious thing, and I don't agree with that lesson. I wasn't even aware until I started going through therapy that that was the lesson I took away from it, and it basically been operating my life under. And so I would never let anyone ever be in charge of any semblance of authority or leadership. I would immediately attack it. Can you give me an example? I got kicked out of church because I kept challenging the authority of the pastor, kept asking questions that I knew would be embarrassing, that he wouldn't know the answer to. I was doing it to deliberately undermine him in front of the congregation. Why? Because I couldn't let someone else be in charge. It was important to me at the time for everyone to know that I knew the Bible better than the pastor. You know, we've joked a little bit modern day. It's kind of a half joke because it's definitely true is that you do have an ego. You're unapologetic about about, you know, thinking that you're pretty darn smart and that sort of thing. So where is the overlap there? Because there is an egotistical aspect of I know better than everyone else. You know, ego is different from this like wound where you feel you need to control because it's coming out of a scarcity and you're going to be damaged if you aren't in control. Like, was there interplay there? There was. I mean, it was totally about control. It was totally about humiliating other authority figures. Um, I made two professors in computer science actually break down and cry 
in front of their classes. And the way that I did it was literally by doing more advanced stuff than they could and then humiliating them in front of their classes. So we're not talking about the ego of saying, I know I'm smart, or even I know I'm smarter than you. It's, I'm smarter than you, and everyone is going to know it. So you keep it a little more to yourself these days. I eventually, after going through therapy, learned that this was my pattern. Eventually, I got to the point where now I want people around who are smarter than me and better than me, and I want them to be in charge. I would say nowadays, I don't have nearly as much ego as even when you met me, and it's immensely freeing. Imagine being someone so afraid all the time that you have to be in control of everyone all the time. That's who I was. Now, as I got a little bit older and more mature, I got better at controlling myself and not rubbing it in people's faces, especially not in the public way, but I was still that person, and I would still find ways to undermine them that didn't reflect as badly on me as a person. And it sounds like you were able to do it kind of like a ninja, too. You described some of those school things as, well, your mom never knew and teachers never knew. So not only were you manipulating people, you were doing it in a way where you came out looking like roses. I was still doing that until 38, 39 years old. And it was finally a therapist who saw my behavior, realized what was happening, and directly challenged me about it. Back at age 16 or something, so this is, this is around the time that you're, you're doing the software company as well, the story that you told. That was around 16? I think I was 17 when I started it. Because the sequence of events were, I finished high school, like two weeks later, I went into summer, summer school in college. I didn't even wait until the fall semester. And I did two or three semesters, and then all of this was happening with teachers I was immensely fed up with school and authority and a, a brilliant programmer invited me to launch a virtual reality company with him. And I took him up on it. Is that the guy who wore the sword on his belt? Yes. That was Kip, now known as Kinsey, because Kinsey is trans. But Kip at the time was the most brilliant programmer and one of the most brilliant people ever. That, that I've ever met. Uh, we're talking 180, 190 IQ. Someone just off the charts, smart. Kip liked me because I was smart enough to keep up with him. And he was completely incapable of socially acceptable behavior. Well, the things that I know about Kip, because you've told this story before, is that at the time, he only ate Hot Pockets. You only drank Mountain Dew and used a chair that had to be like specially made because it was like a kneeling chair or something. Yeah, it couldn't have any back on it. Kip also had extreme ADD and found the drugs to be intolerable. One time we had a meeting with a banker and he ran out of a room chasing a bug. <laughs> only after he killed the bug to realize what he'd done and to come back in the meeting embarrassed. Kip was a goth, and used to delight in causing mischief. So he lived right next to a funeral parlor, and his father-in-law made an air cannon that could shoot a balloon a mile into the air without popping it. But Kip had this air cannon and would fill it with Skittles and shoot them over the funeral parlor while they were having funerals outside. <laughs> 
Kip would fill it with rubber chickens <laughs> and shoot them over the funerals. He would trim his hedges with his samurai sword. It was a real samurai sword. <laughs> so, brilliant programmer. He did the job of at least 50 people, 50 programmers, all by himself. He was the programming department, and he was pretty much incapable of working with almost all other programmers. He had one friend who he could work with, um, named Cyclone. No idea what his real name was. Quite an odd bunch that I fell into, but I actually felt at home. This was your company. This was the company that you formed, and these people worked for you or with you. Mm-hmm. And we made virtual reality software for the Defense Department for soldiers to learn various languages, mostly Middle Eastern languages. At the time, it was extremely cutting edge. Nowadays, it's a joke compared to the stuff that's out there. But it was my first company. My father was the biggest investor. He funded everything until he couldn't anymore. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I didn't know that at the time. I figured I was really smart. Kip was really smart. Of course, we were going to be a success. We operated for, I don't know, a year and a half. And my dad had a business partner rob him of several million dollars right when this was happening. He couldn't give us the money he had promised. We had to shut the company down. Once people found out that we basically only had a runway of like three or four months, they all quit. It sounds obvious, like why people would do that, but John at the time was immensely shocked and betrayed. I think we decided this was one of the biggest, the first really big landmarks that made you kind of perk up and say, maybe the way that I'm relating to people is not the most productive. Is that a fair way to say that? Yeah. Up until that point in my life, every challenge I had faced, I had overcome. Every single one. This was literally the first one where I gave it everything I had and it wasn't enough. So what did you blame for that? Did you blame the other people? I, I'm, I'm guessing you weren't blaming yourself. And what I'm looking for is the leverage point at which you said, maybe I need some changes I need to make. For probably two to three months, I blamed other people for not being committed, for stabbing me in the back. I blamed Kip. I blamed all my employees. I blamed my father. You blamed him because he had his failings and didn't have the money or because he'd done something else? Yeah, because he didn't have the money and he'd promised it to me. I felt like I'm giving it everything I have and I'm the only one. No one else is trying this hard. This went on for a month or two, but eventually everyone left and just kind of left me by myself. I didn't really have anyone to be mad at. And I was insightful enough to realize, put your, yourself in the position of someone who has to be in charge or no one is safe. Someone who loses control of everyone around them. My learning at the time was basically I'm not good enough at manipulating people. I don't know if I would have put it in those words at the time, but it was... I'm not mm -hmm. connecting with them on an emotional level. I'm not a leader they respect. I'm, I don't have influence. I don't have power. And I need to fix that or no one will follow me and I won't be in control. Tony Robbins has this idea of a primary question. And it's like, if the primary question is answered negatively, if it's violated, that's like the worst thing that can happen to somebody. So it sounds to me like at this time, your primary question was, am I in control? Am I safe? And it sounds like you hit a place where the answer was no, 
I am not in control, therefore I am not safe. It sounds to me, no wonder you would have a downward spiral. And I went through a dark period for three or four months. I got pretty depressed, eventually even realized, started to like learn about depression and realized I fit all the symptoms for being depressed. The way I lifted myself out of it was I decided I'm going to learn about people. I'm going to learn about emotions. And even saying that out loud makes me laugh a little bit because it's like, I'm going to learn about emotions. How did you connect the dots between your lack of understanding of people was the reason? Because you went to it from they abandoned me, they gave up and I didn't give up. So how did you get to the point where you were developing enough empathy to say, maybe they might have had some other depth to them that I couldn't see because I don't have empathy, therefore I need to develop it? My, my thing, I, I don't know if I would call it empathy. Maybe it was very, very low level empathy. But my thinking was, if I had enough influence over them, they would have stayed with me even when they weren't being paid. So you were looking for a, a, a manipulation tool. You were looking for leverage. Yes. Okay. And how did you get it? Watching movies was originally how it started. Um, I decided I was going to study people, basically, because I didn't, at the time, have many emotions to speak. I didn't understand anything about my own emotions. I was completely closed off. I had just been with a stepfather that trained me how to be able to kill someone and not feel anything. Mm -hmm. I signed up for a Blockbuster membership. They had this thing at the time that was like 20 bucks a month and you could rent as many movies as you wanted, but two at a time. So you could rent two, you'd have to bring them back and you could have two more. And so I literally brought back my two movies every day. I'd watch two movies a day, every single day. And my intent was to understand emotion. My intent was to understand people. What's interesting to me is that it's this exact same approach that you took to understanding pneumonia and lung anatomy is that you you said, give I'm just gonna do a shit ton of practice and learning and I'm gonna I mean it's bulk. You're talking I think when you told me this before, you said it was three hundred movies that summer, just sheer force of will. Yeah. 300 movies. They told me it was a record. No one had ever rented that many movies in a year. Were you systematic about it? Had you? Did you take notes? I, I didn't take notes, but I would set aside certain movies to watch over and over again. Like what? Fight Club. Fight Club fascinated me. Seabiscuit fascinated me. The fact that everyone would believe in Seabiscuit after he was this lame horse absolutely fascinated me. Well, now, hang on a second, because I, I didn't know this element. So Fight Club is all about manipulation. Fight Club is very cult-like, and the book is even more so. Seabiscuit, you just said that you were fascinated because nobody would believe in this horse, and you wanted to know how, if I may take some liberties, the horse got people to believe in him. I mean, obviously, it was trainers and stuff. So this is very directed and practical. Were most of your, were most of your investigations targeted at how to get people to believe you? I mean, it almost sounds like you were trying to develop a cult. Yeah, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I wanted to be able to control people. Not for any evil purpose. I, I didn't wish anyone harm. I just didn't want to be scared. I wanted to feel safe. Well, the flip side of that is understanding psychology. If you don't understand how people think and what made them leave, that must be the ultimate out of control. Yep. Because you can't prevent something you don't understand. Yeah. And the fact that it was a surprise, that they left and it was a surprise, I realized that there must be something I don't understand. It can't be a surprise if you truly understand it. So I went to work trying to understand people. 
So did your investigations, did you kind of like by osmosis imbibe anything that wasn't strictly that goal that you you found yourself developing empathy or emotions that you didn't expect? That was the unintended consequences of what started happening is I started watching movies that didn't make me feel things and started to pay attention to those feelings and even journal about what I was feeling. I wasn't doing it as any sort of therapy. I was doing it in sense of curiosity. So yeah, I wanted to understand myself better. And I became familiar with the concept that we can go through life and not know who we are. And so I set about trying to understand who I was. What's interesting to me about this is that you're starting with a, a cold emotionless by, you know, by your definition sort of approach to this that's almost it's 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 facile. You're looking to get a tool, but it sounds like you also had this great degree of introspection which does not normally go with that. Normally somebody who's looking for control, it's there's an infallibility that is almost like armor, but it also sounds like you were aware of a shortcoming which feels like it maybe contradicts that because you were aware that you were missing something. And you were willing to see it. Yeah, I was. And I think I got that from trying to understand pneumonia, trying to understand different difficult problems. The The worst thing that can happen when you're trying to survive any sort of medical issue is something no one expects. That's the absolute worst thing that can happen. So my, my theory was ignorance is the worst thing there is. It puts you in more danger than anything. And so my desire not to be ignorant was much greater than my desire not to be wrong. Where did you get this bulk action thing that you do? Because, I mean, this is skipping ahead, but in addition to reading all the FDA things and being super aware of lung anatomy for pneumonia, in addition to binging like nobody's business on movies in order to understand um, uh, emotion. You also, there's a story when you started working with Copyblogger, which is a very large copywriting blog and writing blog, that you wrote, how many headlines was it in the course of a year? 36,000. And that's a bulk action thing too. And I know there are other things. I know that I know that your approach to kind of learning dating was was similar. And so where did that come from? That idea of I'm just going to just force feed all this data into the machine. It almost sounds like a programmer's mentality or AI mentality for that matter. I, I think very much like a, a programmer does. I don't think it was anything more than logic. I No one taught it to me. I didn't see it anywhere that I recall. But I mean, imagine a doctor tells you you're dying and here's some books that the answer is could be somewhere in these books. Well, the logical thing to do is to read all the books, every page, as fast as you can. But multiple times, right? Because you said you read the Bible like a hundred times. Twenty-something times, yeah. But it's still way more than most people. It's more than most pastors. But I definitely picked it up learning, just learning to survive. And for me, it was just logical. If the answer is somewhere here, and if ignorance is the worst thing there is, then of course, I'm going to dedicate myself to becoming an absolute expert on this. An expert means more information. More information. And so during this process of watching movies, I also started to, I became introduced to the idea of psychology and influence and the work of Robert Cialdini and the whole concept of sales and marketing. And I mean, again, being someone who wanted to control the world, I was absolutely fascinated and read every book I could find. And 
at the time, I was so broke. I went through all the books in the local libraries, and then I went to Barnes & Noble, and I, I read entire aisles of Barnes & Noble sitting in the aisle, and they never kicked me out. They knew what I was doing, but they never kicked me out. Thank you, Barnes & Noble employees. I appreciate that. But yeah, I just kept reading and reading and reading and reading and reading, and eventually started to use that for some of what I learned for introspection. Maybe a good uh maybe a good way to close out this episode is so again I'm thinking like a fiction writer and so I have uh what I is probably a reasonably hard question but let's see if what you think of it and that is so we're into the first act here because you have you have realized that there's an adventure to go on in this case a lar- you know an internal one where you had to well first of all literally you had to get out kind of away from the protective umbrella of your parents. You talked about that where you realized it was up to you, but also this emotional journey that you're beginning on. So we're into the first act and the first half of the first act is sort of hallmarked by the hero attempting to get what they want, which is in your case to be safe by using the means that they the flawed means that they have used from the beginning, which in this case was trying to control people. Now, eventually, I'm thinking we get to a point where you feel safe without controlling people. But would you agree that during this phase, did it feel like there were ways in which you were beginning to change, you were beginning to see some empathy, but you were still trying to be safe by controlling everything and everyone? Yeah, definitely. I think that definitely describes what I was doing. And eventually, I got to the point where I did control everything and everyone. In what way? Everyone did what I said. Like, before I went into therapy, there wasn't a single person who worked for me or even members of my family who I didn't control in some way. I went through a time in my life where I even felt guilty about this when I was going through therapy. Oh my God, am I a narcissist? You know, what? what is this? I never controlled them to try to make money from them, to hurt them in any way. If anything, I tried to protect them. I was trying to control people just so I would feel safe. Little like a helicopter parent controls a kid because they're afraid for the kid, but it's really about their own insecurity. Exactly. I, I didn't do anything even remotely evil to anyone. I was a good person. Everyone liked me. But at the same time, if you wouldn't let me be in charge, then you were out. So you told me in an interview that we did back when we first met, I had this framed as like, why you were so unstoppable, why you were able to achieve anything. But now it feels like it might be a symptom of this wound, honestly. You said, there's nobody in my life that I wouldn't walk away from if they told me I couldn't do something that I wanted or needed to do. And that sounds to me like this. Is it or am I off base? No, it's totally this. So now would you would you distance yourself from somebody who said you couldn't do something or would you have a different response? One of the things that changed the most about me during therapy is I now have zero desire to control people. I feel safe even when I'm not in control. When did that begin to happen? Do you remember a first incident? Was it pre-therapy or did it take the introspection of therapy? It took therapy and the therapy I went through for this was extreme to the point where it angered everyone close to me because they thought it was dangerous. And it wasn't. But it was definitely extreme. The therapist even told me, I've never had to do anything that extreme. Okay. I feel like I've, I've seen a little bit of the therapy thing, and we, we, should, we should save that for the next episode. But 
but would you, it sounds like you would agree that 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 first that movie phase was all about still trying to control but recognizing that a change was necessary and you got to the point where you'd done the 300 movies and then did you feel like after that summer of movies did you feel satisfied where like you just ate an entire cake but you still want more or was it more like no no that did the job i feel like i understand people now it was more the second. In what way? How did you quantify that? Or was there any recognition that maybe the control wasn't as necessary as you thought? My real perspective was I have a tool, but the toolbox wasn't complete after the movies. I understood emotions better. But you needed to understand them more. You needed another piece. No, understanding emotion and even empathy is only one part of influence. So after this, I went back to school and I majored in English. I'd always been really good in English, but the real reason why I majored in English is words are another tool that can be used to control people. So this sounds like your classic case of the universe or some something tells you that there's something wrong, that a change is needed. That was your wake-up call with the business and your dad's financial struggles and all that. But it sounds like you kind of got the wrong lesson. It sounded like you felt that you just needed to control people more and influence people more. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's probably a good point to stop because I'm thinking after this, you're going to be and begin to see the holes in that. Can you give me a quick answer? Do you begin to see the holes in that later? No. The journey of learning how to control better and better and better lasted 15 years. The way it ended, the way I realized there was something more was eventually I was in complete control and I still didn't feel safe. All right, everybody, it's just Johnny here to close this out. We have two more episodes coming after this one to finish the summary version of John's story, which is pretty fantastic in itself. I'll just remind you as we close out, please be in touch. We're doing this in a vacuum. We don't really know what people are thinking unless they get in touch. So this is posted on my website at johnnybtruant.com. You can always comment on those posts. You can reach John on Twitter at at John Morrow, J-O-N-M-O-R-R-O-W. And you can reach me at Johnny at JohnnyBTruant.com. And I would also encourage you, if you're at all interested in this process that John and I are using, where I keep coming in and I saying, as a fiction author, I'm trying to understand the arc and I'm prompting him on things as if I were writing a work of fiction. And if you're curious about that process, I wrote up a whole post about it on my site at johnnybtruant.com. And all you need to do is to subscribe to the site. It doesn't cost anything. You just sign up, you enter your email address, you'll get new posts in email. And in the first email, there's a link to that post that I just mentioned where I describe exactly the process that I'm using here and what goes into that. So with all of that said, we will see you on episode four of The Impossible Man.